Welcome back to those of you who have been here all week. I'm, I'm not sure that all of you have been all week. Um, I hope that you have had an opportunity to read the book because I haven't covered the book in any great detail, but I am trying to pull out highlights and, uh, and talk about things that are, I think, uh, of the most importance. So this morning we're going to wrap things up with the final lecture, Do We Worship the God of the Bible? And uh, I hope to um, do a little bit of summarizing and a little bit of uh, talking about the importance of this. Um, sometimes evangelical and conservative Christians do not pay a whole lot of attention to liberal theology. And uh, this is understandable in a way because people who are uh, preaching and pastoring uh, find liberal theology to be not all that helpful and not relevant. However, uh, we live in a culture that is uh, very much affected by the by liberal theology, and we live in a culture where. Um, the, the, the culture of Western culture has been used to having a, a state religion for a very long time. Um, this goes back to the fourth century. And after 1700 years of a state religion, you don't just, it's not the sort of thing you, you just switch off. Uh, and so I think that, that what happens, what has happened in the past 200 years since the death of camp is that the liberal Protestant theology has developed and it has taken the place of Orthodox Christianity as a official religion. Now we might poo poo the importance of official state religion. We might say it's, uh, it's not really serious Christianity. We might say that it's not adequate and that all that would be true, but but it has an effect on the society that we are a part of. And the, the, um, it creates a baseline of, of, uh, of expectation and assumptions. And now I think we're entering a new period and we need to be aware of the change. In the last 50 years or so, um, we, are, we are entering the post-Christian phase of the official religion of the Western world. And this is unprecedented. And it is it has many ramifications and implications for the church and its mission and ministry. And it has many implications for theology, including conservative theology. In other words, we cannot live uh, in an isolated bubble. We are part of a culture, part of a society. And what happens in that society will have an effect, positive, negative, or otherwise, on us. So it's important for us to understand what's going on. It's important for us to understand the culture in which we live. And um, so while the more extreme forms of liberal theology today might seem uh, irrelevant, they, they are not irrelevant because they, it, it's like they create a spectrum and, you, and the, you know, you've heard of the Overton window. Uh, so the debate always is focused on a certain part of the spectrum. And as, the, as, as one end of the spectrum becomes more and more radical, the, the debate moves, stays around the center 
but as the as one end becomes more radical, the center moves. And so what becomes the default central center position becomes more radical itself, not as radical as the other extreme. Uh, it never is that, but but it the, the extremes define the centers is what I'm trying to say. So that um, in the 1950s, um, you know, liberal theology was Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and in the, in, the, uh, in the current situation, you know, um, liberal theology is something like um, uh, Nadia Boltz Weber of the, the American Evangelical Lutheran Church, who is, who is uh, you know, barely a Christian, if a Christian at all. So it's a very different world that we, that we live in. And we need to understand this world and we need to understand the trends. Um, and if you think that things can't get worse, just read the Old Testament and uh, you will find that things can get much worse uh, than, than what they have been. So with those preliminary remarks, let's, uh, let's just begin with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to study and learn. And we thank you for London Seminary and for its, its ministry. We pray your blessing on Bill James and all the professors there. We, we pray your blessing on the students. We pray your blessing on them as they struggle together to, to figure out how to be faithful ministers of the gospel in their own cultural situation. And God, I thank you that you have raised up this institution, and I thank you for the good work that is being done, and we pray that it would last long and flourish and grow, and that you would, you would use it to bring glory to your name. And now as we consider these issues this morning, we pray that you would give us um, keen understanding and insight into the cultural situation in which we live today, and help us, Lord, to, to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, to be like the men of Iskar who knew what to do because they understood the times. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first commandment is to have no other gods before Yahweh. So as Christians, this is job one. Um, before, we, before we talk about converting other people to Christianity, our first responsibility is to make sure that we keep ourselves from idols. And uh, as the Apostle John uh, says at the very end of his letter, to, to, to obey the first commandment is the first task of the Christian church. And you might say, well, that's, uh, that's easily taken for granted. Of course, Christians don't worship idols. <clears throat> I would say that we do a better job of obeying the second commandment than of, the, than of obeying the first. It's true that we don't make graven images. And so that, that leads us to a false sense of overconfidence that people in the modern world, we don't have images and idols like they did in the ancient Near East. And we don't put idols in the temple the way that the, uh, the, way that the Hebrew kings allowed to be put in the Jerusalem temple. We don't have physical objects that manifest the, uh, the presence of the false, uh, uh, false gods that, that are around us. Um, and it's easy to think that just because we're obeying the second commandment that we are obeying the first. But the reason there are two commandments is because there are two different ways to go wrong when it comes to the worship of God. And one way is the go wrong in the way that we worship God, namely through the use of graven images. But also there is a, 
a a heart issue to this to this to this issue. There's a there's there is an an inward as well as an outward aspect of not worshiping idols. You know, people who say that the difference between the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount is that Sermon on the Mount is all about um, inward uh, heart attitudes, and the Sermon on the Mount, and these Ten Commandments is only about external actions. Um, that's not really true. I mean, it is true that that Jesus said that if you uh, look on a woman lustfully, that's just, uh, and commit adultery with you committed adultery in your heart. So he does. It is true that he. He says that in addition to the outward uh, actions that we that we uh, undertake in the world, the way we think and the way we our desires inwardly that are never outwardly expressed are still important to God, and and that's a place of sanctification. We need to be holy in our thinking, not just in our actions, uh, and that's all absolutely true. However, where did Jesus get that idea? Where did he get the idea that we should be concerned about inward heart attitudes as well as outward actions? I believe that you can argue he got it from the Ten Commandments themselves. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they are framed by two commandments, the first and the tenth, which are um, focused on our attitudes and our heart. We're told not to steal, and that's an outward action. And you can refrain from stealing just by not taking your neighbor's stuff. But we're also told not to covet, which is a, a heart attitude. So just outwardly refraining from stealing is not enough. We have to also refrain from the desire to steal, to take that which is not ours, to covet that which is our neighbor's. And it, likewise, it's not enough to uh, avoid gross outward idolatry by worshiping graven images, but it's also important to, to have a heart that is wholly devoted to Yahweh, and which does not compromise in, in our devotion to Yahweh, to believe in Yahweh and to put our trust in him and to, and to have him alone be our God. And that's, that's a, a, an inner heart attitude, not simply an outward action. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is actually um, following the pattern laid down in the Ten Commandments and, and saying, you know, this is true of all the commandments, that we are to, um, we are to, be concerned about our inward heart attitudes as well as our outward actions. So when we come to the issue of idolatry today, it's a matter of what we believe in our hearts. It's a matter of how we conceive of Yahweh and how we think about him. And that's why we're, in, we're instructed in scripture to, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's why we are told that we are to, um, that we are to become people who think a certain way because outward actions alone are not enough. Um, and so what does it mean to have Yahweh as the sole God we worship? The Ten Commandments never get revoked in the early church. The Old Testament never gets revoked. The, the freedom of the Christian from the law is the freedom that is engendered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives causing us to live at a higher moral standard than the law, not at a lower moral standard than the law. And so the, the idea of idolatry is intensified, if anything, in the New Testament, not uh, diminished or slackened. It's not like we can now engage in a little bit of idolatry once in a while and get away with it, and that's okay. Idolatry is still uh, as big a concern for the church as it ever was for ancient Israel. And as we read the Old Testament, 
Um, there is no question, but that idolatry is of first importance in terms of holiness and sanctification. Israel could commit many sins. Um, and, and today we tend, there is a tendency in today's church to elevate the sins against the neighbor to a higher level than the sins against God. But in ancient Israel, the covenant was such that you, that, that Israel could, could be forgiven of many sins, even sins against the neighbor through the sacrificial system, through confession and repentance. But the sin that would place them outside the covenant, the sin that would inviolate the covenant, that would, that would cause the covenant to be broken, that would cause God to no longer bless them and let them live in the land, was the sin of going after other gods, worshiping other gods. Now, when it comes to the issue of idolatry, Calvin said the mind is a factory of idols, and by that he meant that we uh, have a tendency as fallen human beings to create idols. But I would suggest to you that it is extremely important that we know and be aware of the culture around us and what idols are prominent in our culture, because we will be pressured to worship them we will be pressured to worship the idols that are popular in our own culture. Um, and so it, it, it's, it would be naive of us to simply ignore the culture around us and say, well, since that culture is not really, the, it's, it's more liberal than we are, it's, it's more secular than we are, it doesn't affect us. Um, we need to understand the source from which our temptation will come. And we need to understand what kinds of concepts of God predominate the culture, because those are the concepts of God with which we will be inclined to compromise. And remember that, that the liberal project is all about compromise. It's all about um, Christians being, uh, Christians saying that they should compromise with the world, Christian thinking that it's necessary and fruitful to compromise with the world. And we get used to the idea that being the least liberal, the least compromised, is sufficient. We, we, we can easily fall into that trap of thinking that. Um, just because, you know, we can say, well, look, there are other people that are far more liberal than I am. There are people that have gone further. Um, if you look back on the history of the open theism debate in the last uh, number of years, um, the, uh, the open theism debate took place in the context of the, of American evangelicalism and the evangelical theological society in particular. The ETS voted, I remember being there a number of years ago, not to expel, uh, Clark Pinnock and John Sanders from its membership. Now, you may know that the ETS has a very thin statement of faith. It's basically just inerrancy. And that's because the ETS was a coalition of uh, Reformed and Arminian denominations and uh, individuals, which came together uh, coming out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the uh, first half of the 20th century and the emergence of evangelicalism. 
And so there, because there were denominational differences between Lutherans and Calvinists and, and Arminians and, and Pentecostals and others, um, they kept the statement of faith to a minimum. And um, when it came time for the open theism debate, there was really no creedal um, appeal possible. There was really no confession of faith to, to which they could appeal as, uh, as now they later added a clumsily worded document a statement on the Trinity. Um, but, but to this day, that's all the ETS has for a statement of faith. In many ways, the ETS hangs together culturally more than it does theologically. Uh, it's more about class and style of worship and, and ethos. It's more about ethics in some cases than it is about actual theology. But the ETS found itself without resources to really deal with the open theism question. Open theism itself was a attempt by evangelicals to negotiate a compromise between process theology on the one hand and classical theism on the other. And my observation is that these kinds of projects of compromise uh, hardly ever end well. And they only result in a slow rolling liberalization rather than in a decisive uh, kind of uh, clarification. Bruce Ware was a, a theologian who opposed the open theists. And in many ways, I think that his theology which is cited by Bruce, by, by uh, James Dozell in the book, All That Is in God, as a, as a classic example of theistic mutualism. Bruce Ware's theology was an attempt to, um, to basically meet the open theist part way. And I would suggest to you that that is the knee-jerk reflex reaction most of us have most of the time to theological controversy. When there is a controversy, we try to find some place in the middle that can uh, that we can carve out to to create a a a more moderate form of whatever heresy we're encountering. Now, I think that open theism is a heresy, and I also think that to compromise with it is not an adequate response to it. So I'm just warning that that today, yesterday it was open theism. Today it is things that are much worse. And and what we are finding, um, what what we find is that uh, today there is a tendency, not so much for theologians to stand up and say, let's completely throw classical theism over the side. Let's get rid of it altogether but there is a tendency to nibble around the edges to try to modify classical theism. If I've heard it said once, I've heard it said a dozen times that, that uh, oh, we're not out to completely change classical theism. We just want to modify it. And um, usually the modifications begin with the doctrine of impassibility or the doctrine of simplicity. And impassibility inevitably uh, leads to immutability. Um, 
And those are the, the metaphysical attributes that generally come up as the ones that we're, oh, we're going to maintain all the others, but we're just going to question these ones. What I would urge you to look at is when you hear somebody questioning impassibility or immutability, ask yourself the meta question. Step back from the situation and look at this, look at the, the controversy and say, what is actually motivating people to be dissatisfied with uh, impassibility? What is it that is the problem with, that they see? Because what they see as the problem the reason why they're questioning impassibility will tell you what they're going to question next. You see, it's very seldom just one thing. And, and when, if, if impassibility sort of falls, if, if uh, people, if the move to, to deny impassibility and then immutability takes hold and is successful, then it will be simplicity. And after simplicity, it will be eternity. And then it will be, uh, other character, other attributes of God. You need to be cautious at this point because the attributes hold together and mutually imply each other. Um, that's going to be the uh, one of the themes of my paper that I'll be giving at ETS this year, is that the attributes of God form a logically coherent whole. And when you question one, it implicitly, uh, whether you want it to or not, quite places the whole scheme in question. And so I think it's important to, to think about theological controversy, not in terms of what is the, the presenting issue right now today in the midst of the debate, but if, this, if, if ground is seated on this issue, what logically would be the next question to be raised? Uh, whether the individual you're debating with or not is interested in raising that question or not, at this moment, what you have to do is think about the logic, not just think about the presenting issue. So in Romans chapter one, Paul says that people are condemned because although they knew God, they did not worship him as God. And neither were they, thank they thankful. They were not thankful to him. I'd like you to meditate on that for a moment because when Paul says that, he is saying that the Gentiles who have general revelation, the light of nature, they know that God exists. And they, can, they, they may deny that they know because they may suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but they know that God exists, and that is a basis for them to be condemned. They don't have to hear the gospel and reject it before they're condemned by God they already have a knowledge of God sufficient to condemn them from the light of nature. I think we really need to think about that for a moment. That means that people don't just have some vague intuition of God, but they really do have knowledge of God that God exists and deserves our worship. And so we're talking here, when we're talking about knowing God, we're talking about a salvation issue. Um, I don't think that evangelicals are used to thinking of the doctrine of God in these terms. I think we're used to thinking about the points of historical controversy between Rome and Protestantism. So we're used to thinking about the authority of scripture. We're used to thinking about the, 
um, salvation by faith alone. We're used to thinking about grace alone. And we're used to thinking about faith versus works. We're used to thinking about these as salvation issues, but we're not used to thinking about the nature of God as a salvation issue. But it is a salvation issue. It, it does prevent people from being saved to have the wrong concept of God. And it does land people in idolatry to, to worship the wrong God. So for a church to stop start to worship a false God means that it ceases to be a true church. Um, how can we treat this issue as anything less than the most important one we face today? How, how can we make this issue, how can we sideline this issue and say, well, there are many more important things to think about and worry about as pastors and as teachers in the church than this one, because uh, this is very abstract and metaphysical and, you know, it's not really affecting our lives in any way. And yet it is the foundation of everything else. If we don't worship the true God, then nothing else we say matters. So the Jehovah's Witnesses can be fervent in their evangelism. It doesn't matter. They can be faithful in their church attendance. It doesn't matter. They can be dedicated to studying the Bible. It doesn't matter. They can believe in inerrancy. It doesn't matter. They don't worship the triune God. So nothing else matters. And so I'm, I'm suggesting that the doctrine of God is not something that is abstract and remote and, on, and, and irrelevant, but rather is the central doctrine that the church faces. I'm sure that during the, the time of Ahab and Jezebel, when they were trying to bring uh, Baal worship down into, into Israel and establish it as and institutionalize it and, and, and take over the institutions of Israel, like the priesthood and the temple, to use to promote pagan religion rather than Yahweh worship. I'm sure that when they were doing that, that there were people in Israel who fell for the argument that, well, there are more important things to think about than these abstract theological questions. You know, we've got ethical questions to be concerned about. We've got cultural questions to be concerned about. We've got practical questions to be concerned about. And all this abstract theology and whether you can have more than one God or what the, what the exact attributes of God are, what, this could be left to, left to the experts to, to debate endlessly. But we practical people have to get on with life. And we've got to have treaties with the surrounding nations. You know, we've got, to, we've got to have Tyre and Sidon on our side because we need to ship through their ports and they need to do business with us. And we need to have a, a stable country here. And we need alliances because the world's a dangerous place and there are places, people who, who would like to invade us and take us over and we need friends. So we need political alliances. And that means entering into treaties of mutual worship. And, you know, we're practical people and we've got important issues confronting us. Stop bothering us with all this abstract theological stuff. So I'm sure there were lots of people saying things like that in the ninth century, eighth century BC. And, and for a couple hundred years, it seemed like, you know, the prophets were just overreacting. It seemed like Elijah and Elisha were just being uh, uh, too extreme, too fundamentalist. And then 722 happened. And Samaria is destroyed. The northern kingdom is destroyed. The 10 tribes are taken into captivity, never to be heard from again. And you would think that at that point, 
uh, the importance of idolatry and worshiping Yahweh alone would be clear to Israel. You would think then that the prophets would have been vindicated. You would you would think that at that point the kings and the princes and the and the royal court would say, you know, maybe the worship of Yahweh is the most important item on our our, our agenda. Maybe we should be uh, rethinking these foreign alliances. Maybe we should be cleansing the country of idolatry. And of course, there were kings who did take that line. Um, it, it, as you study the book of Kings, you find that the each one is rated. And some get a totally negative rating. A few get a positive rating and a number get a mixed rating. And it wasn't like there, were no, there was nobody who tried. Josiah tried, Hezekiah tried. Um, they, they tried to, to eliminate idolatry, but they found by that point it was so deep-rooted. And when you think about it, how, and you ask, well, how deep-rooted was it in Israelite culture? Well, you go back all the way to, to the entrance into the promised land. They apparently lugged idols all the way from Egypt to the promised land with them. Um, so idolatry was something they never really got free from. And I believe that in the modern church, if we think that we've gotten free from idolatry, we are self-deluded. I think we are still struggling with idolatry. So how do we get free of idolatry? So what I have argued here is that the phrase Trinitarian classical theism is the most succinct way to indicate the classical orthodox doctrine of God taught in the ecumenical creeds and the Reformation confessions as the true meaning of scripture. And by the way, when I say ecumenical creeds, ecumenical means universal. And so I'm referring to the ecumenical creeds of the undivided church of the first five centuries up to Chalcedon at least, but the Chalcedonian definition, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, the Athanasian Creed, these are the ecumenical creeds. The word ecumenical has been taken over by the ecumenical movement in the 20th century, and it's a bad word now for, in conservative eyes because, because it seems to go along with being liberal and lowest common denominator approach. But there's nothing lowest common denominator about the Athanasian Creed. If you've read the Athanasian Creed recently, you will uh, see that um, it's not exactly uh, wishy-washy. So the ecumenical creeds are the foundation of Protestantism. If you want to be Protestant, you have to first be Catholic in the small c sense. You can't be Protestant while, while rejecting the, the definition of Chalcedon, the Nicene Creed. You can't. You are going to end up Socinian. You end up sectarian, um, some sort of cult. And uh, whatever we want, whatever we are as evangelical confessional Christians, we don't want to be cult members. We want to be uh, Catholic Christians standing in the tradition of the, of the Orthodox Church of all ages. We're about reforming the church. We're not about starting a new religion. So, um, so in these lectures, then, the doctrine of God in the ecumenical creed, I'm arguing, is taken for granted by the reformers and taught in the Reformation Confessions. It's in the Westminster Confession, the Second London Confession, it's in the Augsburg Confession, the 39 Articles, the Heidelberg Confession, and so on. This is the doctrine of God that we are referring to. 
And classical theism, it's made up of two parts as I analyze it. There are, there's, there's classical theism, which arises out of the interpretation of the Bible using categories drawn from Greek metaphysics like substance, person, nature, simplicity, etc., in order to express the monotheism of the Old Testament. So whatever these, these Greek philosophical terms meant in their original usage, as they're used by the fathers of the church in the ecumenical creeds, their purpose is to express the teaching of the Old Testament and to guard against uh, any compromise of monotheism. And the reason you need to guard against that is because in the first four centuries of the church, the church is coming to grips with the fact of the incarnation. And the greatest temptation that ever faced the church was to interpret the incarnation in a polytheistic manner. If, if, if we interpret Jesus Christ as a second God alongside of Yahweh, and we interpret them as, as two gods who have each their own center of consciousness and will and power, then the Father and the Son become two gods and the Holy Spirit becomes a third. And what we, we are we could easily fall back into polytheism, the polytheism that um, was confronted by the prophets of the Old Testament. And so it, it took all of the resources of the, and skill and thinking of the early church fathers to articulate the doctrine of God in such a way as to preserve monotheism and clearly state Trinitarianism. And so that's what the Nicene Creed is. A lot of people, when they hear the Nicene Creed, they think, well, that's the, that's, the, that's the teaching that God is three persons. And as long as you have a doctrine of God that emphasizes that God is three persons, then you're, you're Nicene. And I want to say, no, no, you're not necessarily. You're only Nicene if you assume the monotheism that the Nicene Creed assumes and integrate your Trinitarian theology with that monotheism. You've got to be a Trinitarian monotheist in order to be Nicene. And you can go wrong on either side of the equation. You can either, either fail to be Trinitarian enough or you can fail to be monotheistic enough, but either way, it loses the doctrine of God. The, in the 18th century, in the early 19th, the the great temptation was to be um, a monotheist, but without being a Trinitarian. So when deism was all the rage, um, then, then Trinitarian theology was in eclipse. But then in the 20th century, it flips, and Trinitarian theology is all the rage, and everybody wants to be Trinitarian, but what's slipping is monotheism. That's our situation today. How can we be Trinitarians while continuing to be monotheistic. So in, a, in many ways, the 21st century resembles the, first cent, the fourth century in that uh, this is our problem. This is what we're wrestling with. And I want you to notice that if monotheism is the main teaching of the Old Testament and Trinitarianism is the main teaching of the New Testament, then the importance of the Christian doctrine of God is that it holds these two together. It holds together the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
some theologians like Colin Gunton have criticized Thomas Aquinas's first 43 questions of the Summa Theologica. And Gunton also made this criticism against Charles Hodge and other modern theologians. He said, the problem with the, the, their doctrine is that they, they spend dozens of pages, in Hodge's case, hundreds of pages, talking about God before they ever get to the doctrine of the Trinity. He was advocating that we should start with the doctrine of the Trinity. But there's a reason why Thomas Aquinas spends the first uh, 25 questions or so talking about um, the nature, the existence, and the attributes of God before he ever gets to the doctrine of the Trinity in question 26. And the reason is he's following the pattern of the Old Testament, New Testament. He's following the biblical pattern. If you think about it, the Old Testament reveals God to be one. And that happens before the New Testament. And so when we talk about God as one, and then we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we are actually following the pattern of biblical teaching. Rather than imposing Greek metaphysics on the Bible, we're actually following the teaching of the Bible itself. So Trinitarian classical theism as the Christian doctrine of God is, is historically what the church has taught, and it is important to maintain forever as long as the church exists. And it is uh, under attack today specifically in that the underlying doctrine of God as one is being attacked um, and tra the transcendent creator is being attacked, not so much the doctrine that God is three persons. So for 15 centuries, from 381 to the Enlightenment, 381 to, I call the Enlightenment, I, I'm saying it's uh, 1650 to 1800. Technically, you could say 1648, the end of the wars of religion, to 1804, the death of Kant. That would be the dates that mark the boundaries of the Enlightenment. But up until the Enlightenment, you had a, um, a, a, a stable orthodox consensus on the doctrine of God. And that orthodox consensus comes under attack in the Enlightenment. Um, both Protestant and Roman Catholic scholasticism taught this doctrine faithfully. And one of, my, one of my missions in life is to rehabilitate scholasticism as a term. I think that scholasticism has got a bad reputation, and it is, uh, it is very anti-modern, and that's why I like it. Um, <laughs> It, it, the, the term scholasticism is a, is a wonderful term from my point of view, because as a Protestant, I need to have roots in the ancient Catholic ecumenical consensus on the doctrine of God. I need to have roots in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, and the uh, Athanasian Creed. And so the way that I can trace my roots back to, the, to that, those foundational teachings is if I follow the, the teachings of Reformed scholastics like Francis Turretin and John Owen and people like that, because they themselves are rooted in the medieval scholastics like Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and going back to the Church Fathers. And so if you want to sort of trace a, a line of, of theological descent, scholasticism is invaluable because it links the Catholic, uh, the Protestant, post-Reformation Protestant orthodoxy to the pre-Reformation medieval scholastic tradition, which is rooted in the tradition of the fathers. 
And that's why I think scholasticism needs to be rehabilitated and, uh, and, and taken seriously again. So in the book I'm currently writing, I if, unless the publisher um, objects, the subtitle is going to be Recovering the, the Wisdom of Scholastic Realism. And, and the scholastic realism is in both the post-Reformation and the medieval uh, situation. So the way I read Thomas Aquinas's first 43 questions of the Summa is I, I read this as a summary of the tradition. Now I know he's, he's interacting with Aristotle because Aristotle is coming into the West in the 13th century. Um, his writings are being discovered and translated. And there are a lot of people in, in Paris in, in the 1270s who are swallowing Aristotle hook, line and sinker and becoming, and they're falling into heresy and they are, um, they're adopting a, a naturalistic uh, kind of approach. And Thomas reads Aristotle and he says, well, it's not necessary to, to, to follow Aristotle in ways that depart from the Christian faith. Even though the existing medieval consensus was primarily based on Augustinian interactions with Neoplatonism as opposed to Aristotle, Thomas thinks that the, Thomas is more of an Augustinian than he is an Aristotelian. His, his objective is to maintain Augustinian orthodoxy because Augustine comes into the Middle Ages as the one who sums up the earlier church fathers. So Thomas wants to maintain his Augustinian patristic consensus, but he wants to take into account the challenges coming from Aristotle. And so on some points he says, we, we, we think Aristotle is very, very good. He's very good on logic. Um, he's very bad on uh, the on certain other things, but he but but there's there's a correction of Aristotle. For example, Aristotle teaches that um, that uh, matter is the universe is eternal. That matter is eternal. There's no creation uh, ex nihilo. And Thomas says it. Thomas Thomas handles it this way. He says, well, if you are like Aristotle and you are operating on the basis of general revelation alone, you do not have special revelation of Scripture. There is no way on that basis to prove the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Um, however, we know that creation ex nihilo is true on the basis of special revelation. So he doesn't think that Aristotle contradicts uh, creation ex nihilo, but he thinks that Aristotle fails to teach it. So he corrects Aristotle at that point. And he says, um, creation ex nihilo is true. So that's the kind, the way in which Thomas tries to integrate the best insights from Aristotle into the Christian uh, tradition that he has received from the fathers through Augustine. So his summary of the tradition is um, not just speculation coming out of thin air. It's much, it's really a, a, a Thomas is much more of a traditional theologian than people um, often portray him as being. He's much more concerned to protect and define. It's just that he states things with such clarity and such logical um, uh, simplicity that people think he's saying something new, but he's actually not. Um, so, so anyway, scholasticism, I think, is important for, for, uh, for this reason. And uh, since 1800, we're going to take a break in a moment, since 1800, there has been a serious decline in the unanimity of Christian thought. Uh, 
as uh, the influence of the Kantian rejection of classical metaphysics has been felt in academic theology. So the, the, the problem with, with Kant is that Kant rejects classical metaphysics, but he, he appears not to reject Christian theology in toto. The problem is that classical metaphysics was integrated into the Christian Orthodox doctrine of God so intricately that it proved to be extremely difficult to pull classical metaphysics out of the doctrine of God and still have an orthodox doctrine of God. And so that's why from Kant to the present, there has been this process going on by which people are trying to do this and, and but not, not succeeding. It's never, it's never succeeded. And, um, and, and that, that, that happened with Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was the father of liberal theology because he started from Kant's metaphysical presuppositions and tried to restate Christian doctrine in a way that didn't violate the Kantian strictures, but which uh, maintained uh, continuity with Christian theology in the past, but under the new metaphysical conditions and, and rules laid by, down by Kant. And at first, I'm sure there were lots of people who were taken in and who thought, well, this is just, this is still Christian. But over a long period of time, you know, basically over a hundred years, uh, it became clear that what Schleiermacher was teaching by moving the focus of study away from God himself and to human experience of God, uh, that may have seemed like a small step, but as it worked itself out in the 20th century, it became increasingly clear that that was not possible. That was, he was not possible to maintain the Christian doctrine of God under, under those conditions. And so what I'm saying is that we are living in a time where that is dawning on people. It is now dawning on people that, that, that we, if we're going to maintain some form of Kantian, post-Kantian constructivism in theology, if we're going to maintain our rejection of classical metaphysics, then our doctrine of God is going to have to change in fundamental ways that really reveal that it's no longer in continuity with the tradition. That's dawning on people. And people are now making a choice. And the choice is either we go back to Kant and say, nope, we can't go with you, Kant. We've got to recover classical metaphysics and keep the Christian Orthodox doctrine of God. Or they are going to say, we can't, go back behind Kant. We're, we're modern people for better or worse, and we have to continue with the uh, rejection of classical metaphysics and whatever happens to the doctrine of God, so be it. That's the fundamental choice that we're confronting at this point. Um, and I think increasingly, you, you, you have to choose to go one way or the other. Uh, this is not something that you can compromise on. You can't really have it both ways. There are a lot of people trying to have it both ways because there are always people trying to have it both ways, but I don't think that works. Okay, let's take a break. Um, okay, so let's um, let's resume. Um, so I've been arguing that uh, <clears throat> the world is changing and that uh, liberal theology is becoming more and more uh, 
losing more and more of its connection to historic Christian orthodoxy. And I've been uh, saying that this moves the Overton window in such a way that to be moderate today and uh, to try to occupy the center means that you are becoming increasingly radical in your rejection of the consensus of historic orthodoxy. So I just want to give you an example of that. Uh, Dozell talks about Bruce Ware in his book uh, extensively as an example of theistic mutualism. So what Dozell means by theistic mutualism is the doctrine that God interacts with, in, in order to enter into relationship with people, he interacts with them in such a way that they change that creatures change God and God as God changes creatures, that there's a two-way causal effect going on. And open theism was against which Ware is writing, had said that that um, that this this two-way mutual change of God changing the creatures and creatures changing God was essential to true relationship. If God is not changed by his, his relationship with the creature, then God's not really in relationship with the creature. Now, um, what Dozell points out is that where seems to accept that premise, okay, and this, this, is, this is an example of trying to compromise with error in order to, um, in order to, 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 um, to appear to be moderate and reasonable. So, so here's here what, what Ware does is he says that he accepts the uh, the premise that God must must be affected by the creature in order to truly be in relationship with the creature. Uh, but he um, he wants to challenge the open theist contention that that the that God is changed by the creature's decision whether God wants to be or not, but that free will theism is built into the universe in such a way that the creature has the ability and power to change God. Where denies that creatures have that power and ability, but rather the creatures are only allowed to change God because God allows himself to be changed sovereignly. Um, here's a quote from Ware. Open theists are certainly right to ground and embrace the real relationship between God and his human creatures, particularly his own people. Classical theism is vulnerable at this point and in need of some correctives. However, the classical model can be modified and can sustain the real vibrant and reciprocal relationship between God and others. What simply is wrong is the notion that to uphold the real relatedness of God with others must want, one must adopt some newer version of free will theism. So Ware presents himself as a Calvinist refuting the Arminian, the hyper-Arminianism of, of open theism. And he thinks that in order to defend Calvinism, all he needs to assert is that when God is changed by the actions of creatures, this occurs only because God in his sovereignty permits it to occur. He chooses to be changed by the creature. So from, from Ware's point of view, the fact that God sovereignly has control over whether he is changed or not and allows himself to be changed is enough to refute free will theism. But actually, as Dozell points out, he has compromised 
on the main point. The main point is that in order for God to truly be related to his creation in the way the Bible describes, God must be changed by the creature as well as changing the creature. That's the main point. Um, that is the critique of classical theism that originally comes from process theist, uh, process theology and is taken up by open theism. So whether or not uh, Ware intends it, he is in fact conceding the major point while quibbling about a minor point. Because he has, in saying that God sovereignly decides to be changed, he's actually saying that God is ontologically changed by the creature and he imagines that that is enough to preserve the reformed position, but it isn't. It's it's uh, he has basically given away this the store um, with it with this position, and it it's once you admit that there is ontological change in God, then you have a situation where your I you, your whole doctrine of God, your whole conception of what God is has to change. He can no longer be eternal, simple, perfect, and immutable. He has to be thought of in terms of being more like um, a being among beings in the world. Mm -hmm. So Dozell argues that the following things follow from Ware's concession to free will theism. One, God is mutable in being. Two, he is passive, passable, sorry that he is passable, that is moved to new states of effective actuality or being. Three, that he is composed of parts, namely nature plus newly acquired actualities of relation. And four, that he is finite inasmuch as the change of relation is, are said to be in God and must bring him to actuality of being that he previously lacked. And five, that he is temporally bound, that is, um, he is in time. And six, he is not absolute. So Dozell's conclusion is it is more accurate to characterize Ware's theology proper as a form of modified theistic mutualism rather than modified classical theism. Now I point this out to, because this is an example of the kind of general principle that I was talking about before. In theological controversy, the temptation is always to try to find common ground with the opponent and to carve out a compromise that concedes some of the point, but not all of the point. The problem is that one compromise leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. And, and uh, although at each point along the way, one thinks that one is not uh, really making a major shift, after a generation or two of this, um, we, we find that we have traveled a long way down a road away from classical orthodoxy, and we have now arrived at a destination that is very different from where we started out. And it was arrived at by taking one step at a time, which didn't seem radical. Each one didn't seem radical in and of itself, but the cumulative effect is very radical. So what I'm saying is, don't be misled by those who say this is just nitpicking. Don't be misled by people who say, this is just being stubbornly uh, uh, conservative. Don't be misled by saying that if we were reasonable people, we would be open to seeing the good in modern theology 
and somehow finding middle ground that would be acceptable to everyone. That is the liberal project. And instead of the liberal project, what I'm proposing is resourcement, which is an attempt to retrieve classical orthodoxy uh, rather than compromising with modernity. So in this final lecture, I want to look at a few of the major trends in the doctrine of God in the 21st century West. These are trends that um, are, as I said, not ones that we ourselves may be considering at the moment, but they are out there and they are prominent and they will affect us as we go along. Um, after two centuries of the liberal project, there has been an attempt to revise Christian doctrine to fit into the metaphysical constraints of modernity. We have now reached a crisis point. Relational theism, which is my umbrella term for various kinds of things ranging from the extreme of process theology and dynamic panentheism to open theism to theistic mutualism to theistic personalism, that this whole range is characterized by the, by the idea that God affects the world, the world affects God ontologically. All relational theism, whether it's more relatively conservative or relatively uh, liberal, this has become so widespread and has infiltrated so many Christian institutions that it threatens to become the new orthodoxy, so-called, um, in much the same way as Arianism appeared to be in control of the Roman Empire and the church in around the year 360. Uh, in, in the year 360, Arianism was riding high in the saddle. There was an Arian creed, there was an Arian emperor, there were Arianism had won the allegiance of many of the church's bishops, it looked like it was inevitable. It looked like uh, Arianism was going to win. And yet, 20 years later, orthodoxy had triumphed at the Council of Constantinople. And so this is not the time to lose our nerve and compromise. This is the time to stand firm in, uh, in the faith and to expect that God will not abandon his church. We are now at the point where liberal Protestantism is collapsing into neo-paganism. And the question is, will the church survive in the West? And it will survive, but it will not survive uh, in its current form. It will survive in the form of a, uh, a remnant, I believe. I, 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 my personal expectation is that the center of world Christianity will move from Western Europe and North America to another place altogether over the next hundred years. It will either move to Africa or China, in my, in my view. I don't know the future, I'm not a prophet, I can't, but, it, but the tr if the current trends continue, Christianity is declining so rapidly in the West that uh, the, the center of world Christianity will be somewhere else. What I'm sure of, which I know not by extrapolating from current trends, but because of faith, I am sure that God will not leave, allow his church to be destroyed on earth. I don't, I, until the second coming of Christ, the church will be here preaching the gospel. So I don't think the church will be destroyed. But, you know, as the old saying goes, it's not the end of the world, it's just the end of you. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's the, the, the church in the West can be destroyed without the church in the world being destroyed. And, uh, and we need to understand that that we are not essential to the purposes of God. If God could take the Roman Empire and convert it to Christianity in the fourth century, he's perfectly capable 
of using of taking China and converting China to Christianity in the 21st century. Right. So there's there is a uh, a sense there's a strong uh, sense in which there are parallel historical parallels even between the two the two cases. About 10% of China is now Christian. About 10% of the Roman Empire was Christian around the year 300. Uh, Chinese Christianity is uh, persecuted, purified, and strong. Uh, Chinese Christianity is uh, concentrated in the cities. Many members of the Communist Party are Christians. And many of the best, uh, the best and leading people in China are Christians. And, there, and, and what happened with the Roman emperors was that they, there came a point where they had so many problems, barbarians on the borders, food shortages in the cities, crop failures. They had, they had so many problems that they, they looked at themselves in the mirror one day and they said, why are we fighting with the Christians who could be of a great help to us if we just stop persecuting them? And there may come a point in China where that, that same process happens and where the leaders of China say, why are we fighting with our best citizens, with the people that have the most to offer when we could use their help given our multiple crises? Now that's not gonna happen as long as China is on the ascent and is, is uh, militarily gaining and, and establishing dominance as a world power. Right now they're riding pretty high, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities. One child policy has been disastrous. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the prospect of war with the United States, they may stumble into a war which humiliates them. I mean, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And so we just don't know. So what I'm saying is, if, if we assume that God is stuck with us Western Christians, and there's no alternative for God, and so therefore, whatever we end up teaching and preaching you know, well, that's just going to have to be the Christian position, even if it's way, way out in left field and far removed from Christian orthodoxy. If we make the mistake of thinking that way, if we, if we take the inevitability of the continuation of the Western church, even if it becomes pagan as somehow inevitable, I think we, we are drastically misreading the situation. I think we need to understand that that faithfulness is necessary if we're going to continue to be used by God as a church and God is not limited to us. Question. Um, it, it seems that you're, uh, you're connecting the decline of, of, um, of Christianity in the West with, with the, the lack of, of comprehension of the doctrine of God and, 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 uh, and uh, giving up on ground on that doctrine. But you said earlier in this week that um, originally, and, and, and we have more common uh, with, with Catholics in the doctrine of God than we have with, um, than we have with liberal Protestants. So <coughs> what, what would you say is the part of, of, of Roman Catholic Church in, in, in this decline? Or do you think they're, they're a factor? Yeah, well... Um... Vatican II was a huge disaster, in my, in my opinion. And um, coming out of Vatican II, the, church, the Catholic Church was so rocked that basically it was a takeover of the Catholic Church by liberal Protestant theology. That's what happened at Vatican II. The pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict were a 30-year a, a, a attempt to roll back 
the damage done by Vatican II. They, they don't put it that way, but, but that's the way I would put it. Um, so far as I can see, the pontificate of Francis shows that the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict failed because Benedict is a liberal Protestant. I mean, uh, Francis is a liberal Protestant. And, uh, you know, he, he's a, he, is, he is strong leanings toward pantheism. And he is allowing liberal Protestantism to flourish within the highest echelons of the Catholic Church. And so my, my criticism of the Catholic Church today um, is, yes, we have all the old hangover problems from the Reformation, justification by faith alone, role of Mary, the role of the Pope, um, faith and tradition, all these things. However, hear me carefully. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not downplaying those problems. Those were problems, but for 400 years, we had been making some progress on resolving some of those differences at least. But they pale into insignificance compared to the, the, the idea of a liberal Protestant doctrine of God coming to dominate the Catholic Church. And I can tell you right now that one of the things protecting Protestants from persecution in the West is the ongoing tenuous faithfulness of the Catholic Church to classical Christian doctrine. Um, when the British monarchy, the White House, and the Vatican all fall, look out. Uh, we're going to have a different world. So I think that um, it's very difficult for neo-pagans to persecute Christians for their doctrine of God as long as the Roman Catholic Church stands for the doctrine of God. I mean, you can see it in other issues as well. I mean, the reason there's still an abortion debate going on in at least part of the West, uh, at least in the United States, is largely due to the influence of the Catholic Church. What I'm saying is that if the Catholic Church capitulated on abortion tomorrow, it would, it would be a game changer. It would change the cultural situation dramatically. And if the Catholic Church capitulates on the doctrine of God, well, then, you know, it may well be that at that point, it becomes the, the vehicle of the Antichrist. Uh, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but that's, that's what I think. Um, I think that John Paul II and Benedict were theologically orthodox on the doctrines of God and Christology. Sure, they, they held to uh, the Council of Trent on justification, and they, although Benedict was pretty good on justification, but when it comes to Francis, I have no, con I have no confidence that he is leading the church toward re retaining Christian orthodoxy at all. He seems to be, uh, you know, really into um, pantheism, environmentalism. In fact, you know, if you follow Catholic uh, church politics at all, um, that the, this, the big synod they had in Rome uh, on the environment um, with the, the, the idol worship that actually went on. Uh, that was, that was, that was unbelievable because, you know, it, it, it goes further than what I was saying earlier. I was saying earlier that most, for the most part, we in the West are obeying the second commandment. We were having problems with the first commandment. Well, the Pope in Rome actually was engaging in the worship of the Pacmana idols, which, uh, was actually violating the second commandment, not, not, not just the first. 
um, that that was an extreme that we've never seen before. Um, so yeah, there's so I my my view of the Catholic Church is that it's um, it's been a it's had a good run, but if it decides to go the if it decides to go the way of liberal Protestantism, then it will be it will go it will end up being as ineffectual and as dead as liberal Protestantism, and then evangelical Christians will be basically without allies. We will be at the mercy of a resurgent neo-paganism that um, that is not uh, not halted or stopped or mitigated by any huge cultural force. Well, where are we? Will, so the, the question is, will the church survive? Um, okay, so the, the, the forms of relational theism that are growing include process theology of uh, Alfred North Whitehead and John Cobb, dynamic panentheism of Moltmann, open theism of Pinnock and Sanders, theistic personalism of uh, Alvin Plantinga, social Trinitarianism, uh, as in Swinburne and Wolf, theistic mutualism of Ware. And the situation today is that most theologians do not embrace relational theism fully, but try to compromise between classical theism and relational theism by rejecting one or more of the metaphysical attributes usually the three candidates for uh, the three attributes that are under the most attack are impassibility, immutability, and simplicity. Those are the three attributes that are under attack today. So if you run across a theologian questioning one of those attributes, you may legitimately suspect that here's somebody who is dipping his toe into theistic mutualism and relational theology. Many people today believe that Greek metaphysics makes an easy target. They contrast biblical teaching with Greek metaphysical ideas like simplicity or immutability. But when you stop and think about this, here's the implication. The implication is that the entire church from the early church fathers to the 19th century worshiped a false god. Is that really credible? I mean, are, are we saying that it was only in the late 19th, early 20th century that people noticed that the Bible doesn't teach the Aristotelian view of God? Like, are we the first people to notice that in history? Um, did, did Was Owen and Calvin and Luther and everybody else in the Reformation all deceived into uh, substituting Greek metaphysical ideas for biblical teaching? Were they all wrong about the Bible and us all right? Well, it seems, it seems impossible to me to believe that all of the Christian teachers and churches from Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and all the major Protestant churches, including the Anglican, Reformed, and Lutheran traditions, all unanimously built the ecumenical creeds of the undivided church of the first five centuries and the confessions of the Reformation, not on the rock of Holy Scripture, but on the flimsy reed of Aristotelian metaphysics. If, is that what we're being asked to believe? It, because it seems to me that that's impossible to believe. Now, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I admit fully that we can criticize the tradition at different points. So, you know, I, I have some questions about Luther. I think Luther made some extreme over-the-top statements about 
many things like the epistle of James, um, about Aristotle, about metaphysics. But Lutheranism is more than the opinions of one man. Lutheranism is a tradition for a hundred years after Luther, Lutheran theologians constructed the Augsburg Confession. Lutheranism is not just Luther, it's also Melanchthon. It's also a whole tradition of Orthodox Lutheran theology that extends down to the present. It, it would be believable to, to argue that a certain leader such as Luther made a fundamental theological mistake at one point or another. That would be a reasonable thing to argue. But to argue that the entire Lutheran tradition was entirely wrong about something as fundamental as the doctrine of God seems to me to be just impossible to believe. But we must admit that theology is never untouched by the, by the surrounding culture. And it's always influenced by the philosophy of its era. But that's just as true of the church in the modern era as it was of the church in the patristic era. Our, the theology, the theory of theology's fall into Hellenization that 19th century liberal Protestants developed overstated and obscured more than it illuminates. An alternative possibility needs to be considered that it is modern liberal Protestantism that has fallen under the sway of pagan mythology and therefore rejects the Christianized metaphysics of classical orthodoxy. You see, the whole we're influenced by the culture argument cuts both ways. It's, it's not just something that applies to people in the patristic era, but not us. It applies to everybody. And I'm suggesting that liberal Protestantism is far more uncritical of Kantian influence than the early church was uncritical of Platonist influence. I think that the early church did more to modify and correct Platonist philosophy than liberal Protestantism does to modify and correct Humean and Kantian philosophy. And I'm suggesting further that Kant and Hume resemble in many ways the same kind of philosophical challenges that the early church encountered. In other words, we've been there, done that. We've already uh, encountered skepticism and we've already taken it into account. We, you know, Hume was not the first skeptic in history. Um, the church has been dealing with Humes for a long time. So the idea that we should be uh, knocked off our feet by, by, by the enlightenment is really not, not, not something that's credible in my opinion. So, as I've said, it's hardly a, a secret that Western culture is in crisis, and we are characterized by a pluralism so extreme that it resembles a mental illness. Uh, both epistemological and ethical relativism are corroding tradition and morality. Nothing seems solid or permanent. Everything, including theology, seems liquid. Technological change is rapid, but ethics seems unable to keep up with technological change today. Skyrocketing rates of mental illness and suicide, drug abuse, family breakdown, the abortion holocaust, easy euthanasia, gender confusion, sexual promiscuity and perversion. Is this what we mean by progress? I don't think modernity, secular modernity is in a position to critique tradition when secular modernity is proving unable to deliver 
a healthy, moral, and flourishing culture. So here are some awkward questions to consider. What drives the revisionist impulse in 21st century theology? Um, how do we make sense of the disintegration of a stable, mature theological consensus that lasted for a millennium and a half? As revisionism becomes more and more extreme, at what point do we have to admit that modern Christianity is no longer continuous with historic orthodoxy, that is, no longer Christian? What drives the revisionist impulse in 21st century theology? And why does this impulse extend even to evangelical and confessional Protestants? How do we make sense of, of the, uh, uh, how do we make sense of the fact that the 20th century, which was supposedly a revival of Trinitarian theology, actually wasn't a revival of Nicene Trinitarianism? Um, Stephen Holmes in his book, The Quest for the Trinity, in his chapter one is, is really uh, important. The whole book is important reading, but chapter one is, is very eye-opening. He says, I see the 20th century renewal of Trinitarian theology as depending in large part on concepts and ideas that cannot be found in patristic, medieval, or Reformation accounts of the doctrine of the Trinity. In some cases, indeed, they are points explicitly and exegetically or energetically repudiated as erroneous, even occasionally as formally heretical by the earlier tradition. That's his assessment of the, of the 20th century uh, revival of Trinitarianism. Bart and Rahner were in influential in putting the doctrine of the Trinity back at the center of the theological uh, enterprise. Zizulus was very influential with his critique of Western theology as mere monotheism and his advocacy of the Cappadocian emphasis on the threeness of God as a corrective. But did the 20th century revival of Trinitarianism actually escape the influence of Schleiermacher? Um, you know, Schleiermacher shifted the study of theology from the study of the nature of God to the study of human experience of God. And he did this because he was influenced by Kant. Kant denied that we can know the thing in itself. Kant believed that the human mind cannot really know things in the external world. All we can do is take the data of sense experience and impose the categories of understanding on that data and then create a, uh, images in our mind that are supposedly representative of, the, of reality. But we can't know to what extent our conceptions of reality really match reality itself. And so all philosophy from Kant on is constructivist in one way or another. And Schleiermacher agreed with that and accepted that as the boundary and limitation of theology. And so from Schleiermacher on, all theology is the construction of ideas or models of God. Without any conviction that the, the statements that we make about God are literally true of the being of God. The question is, did Trinitarian theology in the 20th century escape that trap? Did it, did it, 
did it actually, you know, is Trinitarian theology in the 20th century actually talking about God as God is in himself, or is it um, talking about our ideas and concepts of God? You know, uh, you, you may have heard of Rahner's rule. Karl Rahner, the great theolo Catholic theologian, early 20th century, was extremely influential. His rule that he proposed was this. The ontological trinity is the economic trinity, and the economic trinity is the ontological trinity. What's he getting at there? The ontological trinity refers to God as God is in himself, eternally and his own inner nature. The economic trinity is God as he reveals himself in history through the processions of the, the Son and Spirit, through the Incarnation and Pentecost. So we observe God's mighty acts in history. The disciples encountered the incarnate Jesus Christ. The disciples were transformed by the Pentecostal experience in Acts 2. So the we see God acting in history. We see him doing miracles. We see him... Uh, acting to judge and save his people. Okay. The ontological trinity is God as God is eternally. The, the economic trinity is God as God acts in history. Now, Rahner, Rahner's rule has been variously interpreted. There is an interpretation of it that is unobjectionable. I mean, there's one interpretation of Rahner's rule, which I would agree with, which is to say that the economic trinity is not some different God than the God who is, exists eternally in himself. If that's all Rahner meant, he's simply restating Christian orthodoxy. However, there's another interpretation of Rahner's rule, which is far more problematic, and that is this, that the economic trinity is the real trinity. In other words, that what we see of God and the way that we talk about God's action in history is all that God is. What be, and the reason that's problematic is that means that God is historicized. God is part of history. And when you go that route, you basically deny transcendence and you deny that God is eternally triune in and of himself. He only appears to be from his actions in history. So whatever he is in history, he is in himself. And that version of Rahner's rule, I think, has been more influential in the 20th century Trinitarian revival than the, than the benign classical interpretation. Um, I just think I, we're at 7.09, and I think I'm going to take a, a short break at this point, and then I'm going to pick, pick up right where we left off. And, and I have just a few more slides to finish before we go to Q&A. So let's take a five-minute break at this point. Okay, uh, let's get back to work. Um, so we're talking about Schleiermacher. We're talking about how he uh, accepts Kant's, Hume's critique of classical metaphysics. He accepts Kant's limitations on not being able to know the thing in itself. And he therefore says we can't know God in himself, but what we can know is, the, uh, is the, our ideas or models of God. And then you have, um, you have uh, Rahner's rule being interpreted to mean that we can only know what God 
that God, God is simply what he appears to us to be as a result of his revelation in history. So um, if you take, for example, a text like Genesis 6, so where it says God repents of having made man, um, the, the modern, the, the modern post-Schleiermacher, post-Rahner approach to that is to say, well, that's just literally true, that God has repented. He, he was, uh, you know, after Adam and Eve sinned, he, he watched the growing degradation of the human race. He hoped that humanity would come to its senses, return to worshiping him. And after a while, he got frustrated and he just uh, eventually became so upset with humanity that he, that, uh, he, he just was sorry that he'd ever made man in the first place. He kind of chalked it up to, you know, live and learn. Uh, bad experience. Next time I won't do this. And uh, but fortunately, Noah found favor in his sight, so he didn't destroy humanity completely in the flood. Okay, that seems to many people today to be the inevitable way to read the text, and yet nobody read the text that way for fifteen hundred years. Um, the classical tradition understands that revelation is accommodated to us. And so when it, when it talks about God, it's speaking about God analogically, and it, it uses analogies from human experience to describe God. When human beings become very antagonistic towards something, we may be sorry that we ever got mixed up with that thing. In trying to answer the question of how bad was it before the flood, Moses speaks about God as if God were a human being and as if God were sorry that he had made humans in the first place. But what we are supposed to take from the analogy is not that God changes his mind in history, but what we're supposed to take from the analogy is that the degradation of humanity was so thorough and complete that God could see nothing good in humanity in and of itself that was worth preserving. It's a statement about how bad humanity was. Now, that was the way the text was read. Um, it was not read. It was read as an anthropomorphism. When you, when you see God repenting, you are attributing a human quality to God that is not really in God, but it's the only way you can talk about God because you have to draw from human experience to describe God. It's the, like, like saying that God has a powerful right arm. Nobody thinks that when scripture says that God has a powerful right arm, that he is a little literal arm of flesh. Although I must say, I was reading Clark Pinnock and um, you know, the, the pressure on Clark Pinnock, he, he takes God as changing his mind and interacting with creation in the most literal sense possible. And that tendency to take things, statements about God in scripture, literally in that way, these anthropomorphisms, drives him to actually speculate whether God does have a body. He actually does get into speculating, you know, in an almost Mormon way, does God have a body? Because after all, scripture says God has bodily parts, just like it says that he changes his mind. 
And if you're going to read one totally, one anthropomorphism literally, maybe you should read them all literally. And so this is this is the kind. So I take I take that that move on 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 Pinnock's part not to be evidence of um, of how consistent he is in reading the Bible. I take that to be uh, you know a sort of a reducto ad absurdum of his of his hermeneutic. If he's saying that his anthropomorphic way of reading God as acting in time and changing like a like a creature. If he's saying that leads him to to wonder if maybe God has a body, I just think that shows how ridiculous the hermeneutic is in the first place. Well, the question that happened, what happens in Trinitarian theology is that in the 20th century is that because it is operating in a in a post-Kantian, constructivist, liberal theological environment, there's a tendency to understand God as, to reason that God is just exactly as he appears to be from his revelation of his acts in history. Meaning that, that God in himself is a creature like us and should be understood anthropomorphically. That's what I think is going on in the 20th century. Um, so for example, you take Bart, and Bart tried to be, as Bruce McCormick says, both orthodox and modern. He tried to uh, do an end run around human camp. And the, the way that he went about this was to ground all theology in Christology. So he wanted to ground all theology in special revelation. And uh, I can't help but but notice that there are evangelicals, conservatives, the most conservative, fundamentalist of conservative, uh, saying similar things to Bart today. They're saying that uh, reject all natural theology, ground everything in special revelation. I just find that fascinating. But what Bart does is that he says all theology comes from Christology, all theology comes from special revelation. So he rejects natural theology, rejects uh, any uh, idea of proofs for God's existence, and he grounds everything in the, the word of God. Well, sounds good. However, there's two ways to interpret Bart. One is what I call the orthodox interpretation. And there you interpret Bart as saying that he, we really do have access to mind-independent reality through Christ and scripture. But there's also a modernist interpretation where you say, you interpret him to mean to say that we have no actual knowledge of mind-independent reality, and so theological statements are not necessarily about reality itself. They're constructs of the human mind that we use for pragmatic purposes. Well, the former would align him more with the great tradition, the latter would align him more with the liberal tradition. So which is it? Well, I, I don't propose to solve this huge problem of Bart interpretation in my book. That would require a whole book in itself. But I would point out this. However we evaluate Bart, to what extent we think he was an uh, orthodox theologian or a modernist, one fact is undeniable, and that is that Bart's disciples, his students and those who followed in his train, deviated increasingly in increasingly serious ways from orthodoxy. 
So for example, take Moltmann. Moltmann is uh, a student of Bart and he grows up taking Bart and he thinks he's taking Bart and extending the logic of Bart's theology and Moltmann moves towards a social Trinitarianism and a theistic mutualism that um, you know, his dynamic panentheism is, is very much way more extreme than anything Bart ever imagined, but he thinks he's taking Bart to the logical conclusion. Pannenberg, same thing. Pannenberg claims explicitly to be extending the same trajectory that Bart started out on, but only went so far. And what Pannenberg ends up doing is completely historicizing God. God is only going to be fully God at the end of history. Because God is growing and developing and becoming, he's, he's attaining his potential in the process of interacting with creation throughout history. And he will only be fully God at the end and not in the beginning. So what I'm suggesting then is that Bart's project of compromise failed. And when what I'm also drawing, the lesson I'm drawing from that is, if Bart tried to do an end run around Kant and Hume without rejecting them explicitly, he probably made the, the best attempt that could be made under those circumstances to retain orthodoxy and he failed. I draw the conclusion then that we have to reject Kant and Hume. We have to regain classical metaphysics to preserve orthodoxy. That's my conclusion. Uh, that, that's where I, what I think needs to happen. And as far as the, the modern uh, Trinitarian revival, um, here's Lewis Ayer's very negative assessment of the Trinitarian revival in his book, Nicaea and, his, and its Legacy. He says, in many ways, the argument of my last chapter is not that modern Trinitarianism has engaged with pro-Nicene theology badly, but that it has barely engaged with it at all. As a result, the legacy of Nicaea remains the unnoticed ghost of the modern Trinitarian feast, which is a reference to Macbeth. Ayers is uh, pretty categorical there. He's saying that, uh, that modern Trinitarian theology is not Nicene. In my book, I try to explain why that is. Because most people, when they hear the word Nicene, they think, well, you're Nicene if you believe in, in the threeness of God, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. That's what it means to be Nicene. But obviously, uh, Moltmann and Pannenberg all believe, Jensen, Gunten, they all believe in the Trinity in that sense. They all believe in the threeness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. And yet, Lewis Ayers says they're not Nicene. And so my book is trying to explain, well, why? Why would Lewis Ayers say that? Well, the reason he would say that is because even though the modern Trinitarian revival emphasizes the threeness of God, it does not really preserve monotheism. And it does not really preserve God as the transcendent creator and sovereign Lord of history who alone is to be worshiped. And so if you have a Trinitarianism that does not preserve the classical doctrine of God as the transcendent creator who is the sovereign Lord of history and who is alone to be worshiped, then you have what I provocatively call pagan Trinitarianism. 
you have Trinitarianism, which is actually polytheistic rather than monotheistic. And in that case, you have lost the Christian doctrine of God, even while superficially it, uh, um, uh, appearing to preserve it. And that's what's going on in modern theology, and that's what we're up against, and that's what will affect us. And I guess what I'm saying, my last word to you before we go to the Q&A would be this. This sort of thing cannot be compromised with. This sort of thing cannot be reasoned with. There is no middle ground between this sort of thing and Christian orthodoxy. We, we need to take, instead of taking the liberal project approach of trying to accommodate Christianity to modernity, we need to take the Elijah approach and condemn this as paganism and reject it entirely. And, go, and just as Elijah wanted to lead Israel to go back and recover the Mosaic covenant and the Pentateuch and the law, we need to advocate going back to recover Nicaea and classical Christian orthodoxy. So with that, we'll conclude and uh, we will, uh, I'll be open to questions. Uh, thank you so much for, for the lectures. They've been really stimulating. Um, I just wondered whether, you know, thinking about our churches and the ordinary members of the congregation in the pew, I, I, I agree uh, and I can see that we need to think more deeply about God <laughs> and, you know, the doctrine of God. Are there any resources that would help the average church member in the pew, you know, um, aside from your book, of course, uh, things that would help? Yeah. Them? Well, I think there are two things that we should do as pastors. And first of all, um, my first answer to that question would be, when you say resources, it's, it's always tempting to say, we need a book that we can give them. <clears throat> no, I, I don't think that's the way. You, as pastors, have to be the mediator between academic theology and the people in your pew. You have to get it straight in your mind so that you can teach well. Um, you can't expect the people in our churches, we can't expect our people to be better theologians than we are. We, we have to be, there, there's a re really strong sense in which um, uh, John Brown of Haddington, there was a quote uh, uh, in the, uh, the re recently published book, um, the Scottish theologian, the genius from the 1700s, um, uh, Beek and uh, and Patterson in their introduction, they they quote him as they they say about him. Let me see if I can find it. Um, they say about him this. They say with all his learning, he tried to preach as if he had never read any book but the Bible. And he often John Brown quoted James Usher as saying this. It will take all our learning to make things plain. And that's what I'm advocating pastors need to do. You need to know a lot that your people don't need to know. 
So um, practically, I would say uh, one of the key things that you can do is to uh, help them to read the Bible in a, in a way that is consistent with historic orthodoxy by teaching them about anthropomorphisms in scripture and teaching them to how to read scripture in a non-naive way, to, to read scripture with some uh, awareness of the fact that, that, uh, that it is possible to go wrong as many heretics in the history of the church have gone wrong by reading the Bible in a superficial and sloppy way. Um, and modeling that in your preaching is important. So I would encourage you, if you wanna help your people, take some of the difficult texts like Genesis 6 and preach on them and model how you handle a text like that in such a way as not to fall into excessive anthropomorphization that leads you to a, a physical uh, doctrine of God, you know, and, and point out that, that in the history of the church, lots of people have gone astray on this point, and you could use Mormonism as an example uh, with the, the idea of God having a body and so on. And, and you can, I think that's how we, we need to teach people uh, out of a, a, a deep understanding and grasp of classical orthodoxy ourselves. I, I think one other practical thing we can do is to resist the temptation to fall into a rhetoric of criticizing the creeds. We need to be very careful about that. Uh, I was just reading something on Twitter yesterday by uh, a, a theologian who was um, taking another swipe at the Nicene Creed. And like, please, I am so tired of that because look, what he said was that many theologians tend to put the creeds above the scriptures. Well, that's not the point. The, the point is, do you believe that the Nicene Creed is the true interpretation of the Bible or don't you? That's the point. The Nicene Creed has authority precisely and only because it expresses the true biblical teaching. So this all this talk about, oh, I put the Bible above the creeds, that is, that is deflection. That is evading the point. That, 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 is, that sounds... I know the guy who was saying it was trying to sound orthodox. He was trying to sound really biblical. But when I hear that, it, 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 the impression it makes on me is here's a guy who's trying to wiggle out of believing the full Nicene doctrine. That's what I hear when I hear, oh, let's, put the, let's not put the creeds above the Bible. I suspect him of Socinianism or Arianism. He doesn't think that I suspect him of that. He thinks that that the more he says the Bible's above the creeds, the more biblical he looks. And I wonder, but 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 I wonder how how biblical he really is. If he feels the need to trash the Nicene Creed, where does that come from? Why do you why do you feel that need? Um, it seems to me that 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 the point is you either believe Nicaea represents the true teaching of Scripture, or you think that Nicaea is wrong on some point. And so. I think we should really try to change our rhetoric around this whole idea of the creed so that we, we um, 
we teach our people not to be suspicious of tradition. You know, the whole world is trying to get them to be suspicious of tradition. When kids go to school, they're being told that traditional views about gender and sexuality are all wrong and need to be changed. Like everywhere you turn in popular media and in universities and in politics and everywhere, people are being told to be suspicious of tradition. Uh, don't, you know, tradition is bad. And we, I think, need to counter that by, by not, it, when we join in this, the, the criticism of tradition and creeds, all we're doing is feeding that monster. And, and we're, we're encouraging people to, to think that, uh, you know, the historic Christian orthodoxy is not important. So I think we, those are two practical things I think we do. It's help people to read the Bible uh, in, a, in, a, in a sophisticated way that takes account of theology, even if they don't know that, but, they, but, they're, but you're modeling it and you're teaching them. And then secondly, I think it is to, uh, to avoid the rhetoric of criticizing tradition and creeds all the time and keep the focus on, well, do the creeds teach what the Bible teaches or not? And if they do, then we're suspicious of anybody who, who wants to disagree with them. <clears throat> Anyone else? I'm sorry we have to make you walk up to the microphone like this, but I, um, I, I just, uh, I have uh, such a hard time hearing and, uh, and I really appreciate you doing that. Yes, sir. Thank you. My question is related to the previous question, and it is uh, how do we kind of correct uh, the move away from monotheism in the Trinitarian revival without falling into the other side of modalism or Sabellianism? In other words, in practical ways, how do we correct what needs correcting but without stepping over to the other side, more in a kind of modalistic direction. Um, could you just specify, I think I missed a couple of key words. What is the other side? What is the danger on the other side? Yeah, modalism or Sibelianism. Sibelianism. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, um, I think one way practically that we can um, avoid extremes is to teach the heresies, teach the Trinitarian heresies and uh, the Christological heresies. There are six main Christological heresies and there are three main uh, Trinitarian heresies. And if we, if we teach uh, Arianism and Sabellianism um, sufficiently, then we, uh, we, can, we can be aware of the fact that the, we're walking along a narrow cliff and we can fall off of either side. And I think that uh, we should portray orthodoxy in that way. Orthodoxy is the narrow path between the dangers. Um, and orthodoxy has to be balanced. Um, you, you really see that in the Nicene and, and Chalcedonian uh, statements that there's a, there are ways to go wrong in both directions. Um, and this is one of the way, one of the things about biblicism that I think is, is a weakness because uh, Biblicism seems to imply that there is no way to go wrong as long as you're quoting the Bible, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, the, and, and it forgets that the devil quotes scripture too. 
and it forgets that the Jehovah's Witnesses at your door can probably quote more scripture than you can. Uh, so just so just quoting the Bible isn't enough. You have to be reading the Bible in awareness of the teachers of the church that have gone before you and and, and be aware of the possible pitfalls that, that are that lie in all directions. Um, so so I guess teaching orthodoxy, teaching the history of doctrine and particularly of the heresies uh, is something we should do more of in the church. Um, I I think we we do our people a disservice if we, you know, I mean, the, the quote from John Brown was that he he preached as though he had only read the Bible, but in fact, he had read far more than the Bible. And, and well, the point of that quote was that he made the Bible authoritative. And I think that's what we need to do is make the Bible authoritative. But we don't make, but, but our way to, to do that we have to study the history and we have to know the pitfalls of the heresies so that when we teach the Bible as authoritative, we don't fall into those, those traps. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm pleading here for an educated clergy. I'm, I'm pleading here for more education, not less. I'm pleading for more reading and more study on the part of pastors and, and not less. Not that you have to take all that reading and study into the pulpit with you every Sunday and, and lay it out before the people. But it needs to guide your exegesis of scripture so that you don't go wrong. Thank you, very helpful. Um, yes. I have a quick question if there's uh, if Okay, um, so two, two questions. One is, um, did you say there's six Trinitarian heresies and three Christological or was it the other way around? Six Christological. Oh, six crystal. Okay, I've got it backwards. Okay. And the other question is, um, if uh, when you were discussing the the Catholic Church in Vatican II and and how the um, the Catholics um, still highly esteem the Church Fathers, um, my gut instinct is to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I don't want to have anything to do with the Catholics, right? Because you know they they've departed from like you said in the fifteen hundreds the traditional definition of faith and justification stuff. Um, so at what level are you saying they're an ally? Um, because I know you're not saying we would say to people in our local community, oh yeah, for sure, go to your local Catholic church, it's fine. Like at what level are you saying we we work with them or do anything, have anything to do with them? Okay, so think about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8 versus Galatians. Okay, so what is Paul laying out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8? He's laying out the basic gospel facts of Christ's atoning death and resurrection. And he's saying that's the gospel. But when he's writing in Galatians, he's arguing that justification by faith alone is the gospel. So what's the connection between the two? It seems to me that in Corinthians, what you have is a statement of the basic facts of salvation history, the things God, God has done in history to make salvation possible. In Galatians, we're talking about faith and works, justification. We're talking about the application of salvation to the individual. All right. So we got two levels here. If Christ is not risen, well, then all our talk about justification is moot. There's no point in talking about that. It doesn't matter what you have faith in. 
If Christ is not risen, if the tomb isn't empty, then how much faith you have is irrelevant because there's nothing to have faith in, right? Am I right? Okay. These are two levels of, they're both integral to the gospel. In order to have Orthodox Christianity, we've got to have, we've got to believe that Christ really be, was God incarnate and that he really rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and lives forevermore and will return again. We've got to believe that. But we also have to believe that the way we receive the gospel is by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Now, the Catholic Church has, from the Reformation up until now, been solid on the, the basic facts of salvation history. They have taught clearly that God really exists as a transcendent creator, that Christ really is God incarnate. He really rose from the dead. There really was a virgin birth. There really were miracles. All those things the Catholic Church has been solid on, where they have been wrong since the 16th century is on the issues of the application of salvation to the believer. So that's where we make common cause with them, is we, we on the level of believing in the facts of salvation history. And that's, that's where they have been an ally for us uh, through, throughout modernity. Because modernity, secular modernity, has had to confront the fact that the United Christian Church, including Catholics and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, all they may be divided on issues of justification by faith and the application of salvation, but they're all united on the basic facts of salvation history. And that's, that's the sense in which they are an ally. Now, if they, but liberal Protestantism didn't just question issues of justification and application of salvation. Liberal Protestantism questioned the very foundation of God's saving acts in history themselves. The liberal Protestantism questioned whether Jesus really rose from the dead, whether he was really born of a virgin, whether there really are miracles, etc. And so in that sense, I think is what Machen means in Christianity and liberalism when he makes the comment that, that the, the confessional Orthodox Presbyterian is closer to the Roman Church than to liberal Protestantism. He's saying that partly for its shock value because there's a lot of people in the Presbyterian Church of his day who say, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're all Presbyterians and we're all, we got to all hang together here and, and stay together as a church. And he's saying, no, we, we don't stay together as a church because the differences are so broad, they're so wide, so deep that they, um, they're the differences between Christianity and non-Christianity. And so he sees liberal Christianity as non-Christianity. And so he sees it as even worse than the Catholic Church. That doesn't mean the Catholic Church is right. That doesn't mean Machen is uh, um, going soft on justification by works. It's not, that's not the that's not point at all. But it's this distinction between believing in God's action in history to effect salvation, the great events of salvation history, calling of Israel, the the, the exodus, the, the coming of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and all those things, believing those things happen. So at least we have that, that basis to, to in, in and, it, and we can say as Christians, you know, we're small C Catholic in the sense that we believe those things. We believe the first Corinthians 15 things. Um, but we are at odds with the Roman church over the Galatians issue over the application of salvation to the individual and the ecclesiology issues. So, so I think that 
we need to make this distinction because, um, uh, and, and that's what I was saying at Vatican II, um, the problem at Vatican II was that this whole idea of, of the rock solid belief in the basic events of salvation history themselves seemed to me to be brought into question, maybe not by the Vatican fathers themselves and by the documents, but by the liberals who were using Vatican II to bring, you know, as they put it, bring the Catholic Church into the modern world, by which they meant introduce theological liberalism into the Catholic Church. Th that, that, that tendency to accept theological liberalism was something new and different. Like when Calvin and Luther are attacking the Roman church of their day, they don't have any issue over the doctrine of God. They don't have any issue over Chalcedonian Christology. They know that the Roman church is solid on those points. They're fighting about justification by faith and Mary and the Pope and indulgences and justification by works and so on and so forth. But 400 years later, we now have a Catholic church that is being tempted to follow the root of liberal Protestantism. And if that happens, then they will be, it will be even worse than it, than it has been. Um, if, if you have them wrong on the application of salvation issues, salvation and ecclesiology and sacraments, and then they're also wrong on the basic facts of salvation history, then they're a completely apostate church and we have nothing in common with them. They might as well be Episcopalians at that point. Thanks, thanks for your answer, it's helpful. Yeah. Um, yes. Would you say the rise in the idea of eternal subordinationism um, stems from the, the historic idea of God? Somewhere uh, the, witch, the witch now what subordinationism um the eternal subordination you mean Christ. the eternal functional subordination of the sun yeah, yeah. that teaching by grudem yeah yes um well that's a very big uh, a very big question a very delicate question a very debated question um what seems to be emerging as the consensus in my opinion of of solid theologians uh, is that Grudem's view of eternal functional subordination is wrong. What seems to be debated is, is it so wrong as to be the equivalent of Arianism? Or is it just an error, a well-meaning uh, well theologian who makes an error in Trinitarian theology? Uh, that's, that's up for debate right now. Um, I think that uh, the doctrine of the eternal functional subordination of the sun is a big problem. Um, and I think a lot of it depends on, on how far a person logically extend, extends the logic of that position. I think it can lead to, um, or, uh, to a, it can lead to one of two places, either inconsistency or to actual uh, Christological subordinationism, which would be heresy. 
Uh, I have an art. I have an article in um, Credo Magazine, uh, which is an online, a free online resource, um, which I highly recommend. Uh, edited by Matthew Barrett, uh, coming out of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in the States, and Credo Magazine is a, uh, I think, a wonderful resource. Pastors really ought to read it, and uh, uh, not just because I publish it, but but I did publish an article, 6,000 words, on Grudem's second edition of his systematic theology, in which I addressed this very question. Thank you. That's helpful. That's really good. Yeah. So you can look that up. Any other questions? We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, 12.52, your time. And we have eight minutes left. Is there another burning question or two? Yeah. Yes. Do you think there's a danger of using the term Christian Platonism um, to go too far back, um, swing the pendulum away from liberal um, theology back to emphasize Greek metaphysics to the extent that you put reason above uh, special revelation? Uh, do you feel, feel there's a danger there in emphasizing the Greek metaphysics too much? Or do you feel it's absolutely essential to do so given the, the movement of the liberal uh, Christianity? Well, yeah, that question comes up a lot. And, um, and I, guess, I guess my answer would be um, that if you look at the writings of Augustine and Aquinas, and you evaluate the degree to which they use Platonic metaphysics, I think we need to use it to that degree. So I guess my smart alecky answer would be, you know, are you saying Augustine is a heretic? Like that, that would be my, my smart alecky answer to people who criticize the use of Christian Platonism because Augustine in the city of God, you know, basically, um, basically lays out in great detail what he appreciates about Platonism and where he criticizes Platonism. And um, at that point, you know, Christian Platonism is identical with Augustinian theology. And Aquinas is a great Augustinian. So I, I guess my answer would be, I don't think that Augustine used Greek metaphysics too much. I think he corrected it sufficiently on the basis of scripture where necessary. So if you're, if the question is, is it possible to go too far in accepting Platonism? Well, the answer is undoubtedly yes. And um, I, think, uh, I, I think Athanasius criticizes Arius for that, for, for being too much of a Neoplatonist, for, for, for not really um, correcting Platonism where it needs to be corrected. So, um, you know, is it in theory, in principle, possible to go wrong by accepting too many ideas from Greek, from Plato and Aristotle? Oh, absolutely, of course. Um, but Augustine would be the first to admit that. The question is, can we completely extricate Christian orthodoxy from classical metaphysics entirely? And I would say no. So if you agree to the two, if you rule out the two extremes, if you say, well, we can't just take over 
Greek metaphysics without correcting it from, from scripture. But we also can't just throw it out completely and expect to keep Christian orthodoxy. If we can agree to rule out those two extremes, then I think everything else is up for discussion. And, and I think we can have a we can have a fruitful dialogue about that. Um, but I guess, um, to be honest with you, I think pastors need to know more Augustine. I think I think the the examination of the actual issues that um, that Augustine deals with in his writings in the Trinity and Confessions and City of God, those three works in particular, examining those issues and looking at how he interacts with with his platonic sources um, is really important and should be it should be something that every pastor wrestles through in, in, in at some point, because we hear all the time people making these generalized statements. Well, be careful, don't take on board too much Greek metaphysics. Yeah, okay, well, in theory, fine, that's true, but well, what does that mean in practice? What does that mean practically? What does that mean in detail? And so, um, I think if we if we read Augustine and and the secondary literature um, diligently, it will help us to work our way issue by issue through these things in such a way that we will we will end up not taking either extreme, not just rejecting all Greek metaphysics uh, out of hand, and not just uh, swallowing everything that we read in the Greeks as as well, and we will we will devise a path through the middle that is balanced and, and, and good. But I, 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 again, I think the, the people who are the most certain and the, the most um, vociferous about this are the people who are, uh, have not really studied Augustine in detail. Um, and Augustine is so important in the, in the tradition that if you really, if you want to understand Calvin, you really need to know Augustine. If you're, if you're going to understand the later tradition, you've got to understand the, some of the foundational figures like Augustine and Aquinas. So I think if, if, um, if, we, if we, we get into trouble, I think, by trying to um, make, make, make conclude, draw conclusions about the relationship of philosophy and theology without looking at the exemplary uh, theologians in the past who have work through the, the questions in detail and from whom we can learn a great deal. Even if we end up disagreeing with them on a point here and there, uh, we can still learn a great deal from them um, about how to do it. Okay, that's great, thank you. Okay. All right, last question. So I think we all agree that we don't want the massive diversions from classical orthodoxy of some of the figures we've talked about from the liberal trad tradition. And I think generally we're agreeing that classical theism is where we all ought to be. But how, how should we relate to the more conservative theologians that we've appreciated a lot from, but who have departed, perhaps denied immutability or simplicity, people like Carson or even Packer, as you mentioned on, in your book, and as Dozel talked about, what should be our sort of our attitude towards theologians like them? Well, I think that um, 
I guess that we should be open to learning from uh, a large number of theologians of various persuasions. Um, I think, though, that uh, one mistake we make frequently, um, and maybe maybe at London Seminary this mistake is made less frequently than it is at many other institutions, uh, is to concentrate on reading only modern theologians. I think the reading of older theologians is uh, uh, very helpful. And I would specifically uh, urge future pastors to read the Puritans and the, um, and the Reformed Scholastics. Uh, people like Turretin, people like Perkins, people like John Owens. Uh, I, I, would, I would, Stephen Charnock, The Existence and Attributes of God, those kind of writers. Um, I think we, we have, we, we are, anybody, basically anybody who is pre-modern, as in pre-1800, um, is going to give us a very different perspective than people in the post-1800, uh, the post night, especially people from post-1900. Because the the we, the strength of these of modern recent theologians is also their weakness they 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 appear to know our situation well and so they appear to be relevant they appear to be speaking about the issues that are um, important today but that that strength is also a weakness they they are also coming they are also people who are like us immersed in modernity and um sometimes unaware of the degree to which they have been affected by modernity. So when you read people from the pre-modern period, you're dealing with people who have not been affected by modernity in the same way. And it's not that they never make mistakes, but they, make different, they tend to make different ones. And, it's, um, it, and they tend to challenge some of our presuppositions and, not, and they avoid falling into some of the traps we fall into. So therefore they're useful to us. And uh, any education that tells you that all you need to do is read books from the 20th and 21st century to be a, an educated pastor, I think is an inadequate education today. I think, that, I think the most, the thing I would urge you to do is to read pre-modern sources um, and books about pre-modern sources. Uh, but don't just, C.S. Lewis uh, set up an impossibly high standard when he said, that for every modern book, you should read an ancient book. And about 20 years ago, I started keeping track of all the books I read. And I have a list from every year of all the books I've read from cover to cover. And, uh, and I have a category for a pre-modern. So I define pre-modern as pre-1914. Anything pre-1914 is going to go in my pre-modern list. And I'm ashamed to tell you that my pre-modern list is so tiny compared to my 20th century list of books read that it is um, astonishing. And I have a feeling it's that way for most of us. Um, so I just would, I, the only thing I could say in my defense is that a lot of the books I read that were written in the 20th century are about the earlier, um, earlier periods. Um, so, but, but reading, reading pre-modern sources, I think is the most important thing we can do to avoid being taken captive by the, um, by the uh, spirit of the age. Uh, avoid being uh, influenced unconsciously by uh, the assumptions of modernity that are actually actually at odds with 
with traditional orthodoxy, even though we don't realize it. So reading the pre-modern sources and reading them intelligently and critically and letting them be, be critic, let, letting them criticize our assumptions. I think that's, uh, that's very important. Um, and just losing this, this semi-religious awe that people seem to have for modernity as anything modern is better. Uh, we need to get over that. We need to, to, uh, to really be kind of cold and clear-eyed about looking at our culture and saying, you know, we're not doing a very good job of, of running a Western culture these days. Western culture is in big trouble. And so the, the common sense taken for granted everyday beliefs that people have uh, should, be, should be really critically scrutinized to a greater degree than they are. And we should not be assuming that later is better and modern is better. We should rather be, uh, be much more critical of the, uh, of the common assumptions being made both in the church and outside the church, I would say. So um, I guess my, my, my question is, we can learn from anybody, Every, anybody can be helpful, um, but um, I do think you will start to see uh, theological literature dividing into a revisionist stream and a resourcement stream as we go forward. And I would urge you to uh, immerse yourself in the resourcement stream uh, more so than the revisionist stream. And to, uh, I think that, that up until now, they've been so mixed together, it's hard to tell, you know, whether somebody is, you know, J.I. Packer, for example, did a wonderful job in recovering for evangelicals the importance of Puritanism. I mean, we've got to give him credit for that. And, uh, and, and insofar as Packer has helped us to appreciate the Puritans, you know, he's done, he's done a good service to the church. If, if he gets criticized in Dozell um, for some, some, uh, some comments that he made about, you know, God sovereignly allowing himself to be changed, well, okay, nobody's perfect. And I was, uh, I was at a, um, uh, a conference with D.A. Carson one time uh, a couple of years ago, and um, in reference, Carson made a comment about uh, some of these issues. And we were on a panel discussion together, and I, and I, I, I made some comments about um, relational theism and so on. And, and his comment was, it seems to have become clear over the last number of years that many of us have been less careful than we need to be in making statements about God changing. His words were something to that effect. I'm not quoting him exactly, but that was, I think he was acknowledging that uh, something that I think, you know, is important to acknowledge that, that not everybody who makes a mistake in theology is intentionally trying to be a heretic. Only some are, not all. And um, I think Carson was, was, you know, Carson is named in Dozell's book. And I think Carson has, has uh, been, has rightly, um, you know, acknowledging that, that evangelical theology has been less careful than it needs to be on making some of these statements. Um, Carl Truman told me a story similar. He said, uh, he said that when, when, when Truman was at Westminster Seminary, uh, Dozell was a student at that time. And, um, you know, at the end of my book, I criticized the book by Rob Lister on impassibility. I spend a few pages criticizing that book. Well, when the Lister book was published, um, 
Truman wrote a appreciative review of it, if you could believe that. And Dozell went to him and said, um, uh, Professor Truman, I have great respect for you, but with all due respect, I think you're off base here in commending Lister's work, and here's why. And, and Truman uh, sort of looks back on that and says, you know, he was right. Um, and, and, you know, he, he said when he read my book, he wrote the foreword, you know, to the book. And he said, when I read your book and you, you dismantled Lister at the end, he said, I was a little bit chagrined because uh, my initial reaction was not to see the problem with Lister's position. Uh, but now, now I do. Um, so I think there are a lot of people who have been well-meaning and have been, you know, have gone, gone off course a little bit on this doctrine. And as soon as they are presented with the truth, they correct themselves and move back. And so I don't think it needs to be a hanging offense. Um, I think we need to have, uh, we need to have some, some honest dialogue about these things and discussion. And I think a lot of people you know, we found it was the same thing in the fourth century. There were a lot of bishops in the fourth century who were uh, appearing to side with the Arians because they they were they were saying that they believed in the homoi usios, not the homo usios, but homoi. Homo meant same, homoi meant like. And so they were saying that Christ is like in being to the Father. But of those bishops who were saying homoi, some of them when probed further, they turned out to be out-and-out Arians, neo-Arians. They were say they were subordinationists. But others who were saying homoi turned out to be um, actually Nicene when the chips were down. They actually sided with the Nicene, the pro-Nicenes, in saying, "No, the Son is not subordinate to the Father. The Son is really the being of the Son and the Father are are the same." And and by saying like, we're trying to emphasize how much like. Uh, the being of the father, the being of the son is. So in so so the Homoians split into two groups, and one went with the Arians, and one went with the Nicenes. And one of the the greatest um, reasons why the pro-Nicene position won out and achieved a consensus at the end was that the people like Athanasius and the Cappadocians were wise enough not to write off everybody who appeared to be using the wrong terminology. <clears throat> Careful to investigate what the people meant by the terminology and where their heart really was and not just, just dismiss their, uh, the possibility that they could be orthodox just because they were using the wrong terms. Um, so let's learn from that. And let's, uh, let's uh, also be quick to, um, to not write people off because they say things that are wrong. Like I think this is true in the eternal functional subordination uh, issue. There are people who are saying things that I regard as bad theology, but their heart's in the right place and they mean it well. And when they are presented with, with uh, logic and facts, they do correct themselves and they change. And so we're still in a phase where this is possible. So, um, but on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that just as in the fourth century, there are some real heretics out there, and we have to be we have to be um, we we can't just hold hands around the campfire and sing kumbaya and let that substitute for orthodoxy. That's not going to work. Thank you. Thank you.
All right. Well, thank you all for your attention. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I wish I could have been there in person, but um, but this is uh, the next best thing. And uh, God bless you in your ministry. And uh, may you be found faithful in preaching uh, the doctrine of God. And may you avoid idolatry and um, and help your people to do the same. Thank you. 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 All right. So long.